singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Singularity One on One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. If you guys enjoy the show, you can make me, help me make it better in one of several ways. You can simply go and write a review on iTunes. You can leave a comment on YouTube. You can leave a comment on singularityweblog.com, or you can simply make a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Ayesha Hanna. Ayesha is uh, the co-author of a fantastic book called The Hybrid Reality, Thriving in the Emerging Human Technology Civilization. And she's also, I think, the co-founder of, of the Hybrid Reality Institute. So, uh, hi, Ayesha, and welcome to the show. Hello, Nicola. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Fantastic. I'm very happy to have you here. Uh, I'm actually trying to bring more women um, to give them voice um, and, and to represent better the female, the feminine perspective on my show because out of the past probably 19 interviews that I've done, I have had only five or six women so far despite my best intentions. So let me start by asking you this. Uh, is it fair for me to... Uh, excuse myself by saying that I do find very hard to get women experts in the field of technology and advanced uh, cutting-edge science to get on my show. Well, I think there are, um, there are enough women out there to make up your show. But in general, as a percent of the women who are in technology needs to be um, actively addressed And so in New York, for instance, Reshma Sojani, whose congressional campaign I advised a couple of years ago, has actually set up a campaign called Girls Who Code. There is a young woman that I met recently in Hong Kong who started a robo-gals organization, and she was Australian of the Year in wow. 2012. She's just, you know, a teenager, but very brilliant. Um, in our institute itself, we have a roboticist, and we have some people thinking about Um, multimedia and technology. So I think that this is an area we really need to involve more women in, and I think we'll see that more and more. In my own home, I have a young daughter. She's three and a half, and I've been trying to bring her into technolo technology and algorithmic thinking for some time. But, you know, these are things that you need to encourage at a very young age. Mm -hmm. And already in some preschools, even the best preschools, you can see there is this kind of division between boys and girls. And unfortunately, in places, especially in emerging markets or developing countries like Pakistan, which is where I grew up, mm -hmm. very if it doesn't happen early on, then it really happens in college where the women become more towards the liberal arts and the men are the ones that really go much more into the engineering sciences. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say you can be excused for thinking there are not too many women, but they are enough that I think you should have more on your show. <laughs> <laughs> As an interesting side note, by the way... Um I think that uh, a few years ago, for the first time ever, the University of Toronto Department of Engineering had, I think, 52% women students, female students, and 48% males. So I think that trend might be seriously reversing. And that is music to my ears. I think that's so important, especially for someone like me who came to technology and engineering later in my life. Um, and I feel like, wow, I was so mesmerized and awestruck by it. 
But I think that if I had had that exposure earlier on, I would have been able to enjoy the world and understand it a lot better, especially these days since, as I was mentioning to you earlier, I'm more involved in education. Technology is like another language, like mm-hmm. math or art. You really need to learn it just as a basic skill. Mm-hmm. And speaking of, of other languages, uh, I mean, there's those uh, very traditional stereotypes and uh, people like John Gray, for example, have sold, I don't know, 20 or 30 million books uh, selling their message that, you know, women are from Venus and men are from Mars and therefore we speak different languages and, and therefore in this kind of stereotypical traditional way of thinking, it's very natural that men will be more technologically inclined rather than women. What do you want to say about that? Uh, you know, I would disagree with that completely. <laughs> uh, and I and I think it's just based on my own experience, not only of being a technologist, everywhere from being a programmer to managing multi-million dollar projects to um, actually thinking theoretically and doing my PhD in information infrastructures. I've really been exposed to the breadth of issues and problems and thinking and models, computational and otherwise. And there is nothing to say the conversations that I've had with men that they were any better, any worse than women. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think these stereotypes really need to be completely demolished. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you, and, and hence my attempts to bring more uh, feminine representation on my show. Uh, now, let's let's move on to, to what you guys do, because um, I think uh, I had the pleasure of meeting you and watching a presentation of yours when I was at Singularity University. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have this very interesting concept called the hybrid reality. So perhaps it's uh, best for me to start by reading just uh, a couple of sentences from your book, uh, and they go like this. The hybrid age is a new socio-technical era that is unfolding as technologies merge with each other and humans merge with technology, both at the same time. So would you mind unpacking this idea about the hybrid age, the hybrid reality for us, please? Well, I think the key word here is socio-technical, which means that our relationship with technology is changing. So even though a lot of people think that and believe we are still in the information age, and we very much are so, and perhaps the intensification of information and the computing technologies around it are the biggest technological trend, but from a socio-technical perspective, we are encountering a whole other way of dealing with technology. Uh, And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that it's becoming much more ubiquitous and it's becoming much more invisible, especially if you look at infrastructure, networked infrastructure in cities. It's definitely becoming more intelligent. We may not have the robot nanny or the robot maid at the moment, but we have Siri. We have much more than just simple decision support mechanisms now. And I think that we're seeing already, and we've seen this with children, and Sherry Turkle has done some amazing research on this, that we are developing some kind of emotional relationship with technology artifacts. Now, all of this is having an impact on not only our sense of selves, our sense of identity, the automation of work. Our sense of selves is very tied to our work. Um, and it is also having the, an effect on the way we organize ourselves as society, whether it's governance and self-governance, as we see in the ability to uh, provide much more rapid feedback to government officials, or in the way that we socially organize ourselves, as we see on Facebook and other media. 
um, and I, or economically organize ourselves, which is things like TaskRabbit or other things where you see micro work and micro supply. So all uh, are being matched by, uh, by technology. So these are just very basic examples from today. I'm, and I always never like to think 30 years from now. I usually think let's think 10 years from now because there are prototypes available for a number of these things. And that's drastic enough for mm-hmm. us to consi- reconsider um, and the reason it's a hybrid age is because of the prominence of technology as much more than just a passive entity in our lives. This doesn't mean that it's a conscious human being type entity, but it is, it does have a presence that's enough for us to consider it much more important, much more either a partner or depending on whether you've been attacked by a hacker, much more an enemy, it is mediating a number of either good or bad instincts by humans um, that, that is making it a much more powerful factor in our lives. Mm-hmm. And that is, that's why it's a socio-technical era. It's a new socio-technical era because we are, our relationship with technology has changed. And do you think that coming to grips with that kind of new socio-technical era is the way for us to, as you say, thrive in the emerging human technology civilization. And why? Absolutely. Well, you know, it's, it's definitely a trend that's happening and you can't stop the trend. And you may, you, you don't want to stop the trend because a lot of good things happen from it. New diseases are cured. Uh, we can alleviate poverty. People are much more connected. On the other hand, there are some ill effects of it as well. Big Brother is just one of them. But to be able to leverage the opportunities that this new technology gives us or to be able to protect ourselves, which I think is as important. We need to have a big debate about some of these issues, get more people involved in thinking through them, and we need each other. We need to help each other think through it. And without doing that, how can we begin to lead a high-quality life? How can we begin to meet our potential, do all the things we want to, and also protect ourselves from the invasions that such technology, even drones, which right now we already know are flying, um, you know, not only in war zones, but also in several states in the U.S. Yeah, over cities and, and I, increasingly for law enforcement and uh, for the movie industry, for example, for the real estate industry. Real estate, exactly. Yeah, and it's, I mean, there are isolated cases, but these things very rapidly, especially with manufacturing was done in China, can very rapidly scale. Mm-hmm, yes. So, so tell me, what's the, in that case the goal or the motivation and the plan behind writing your book? The plan behind writing my book was primarily to start a debate and to have more people join the conversation. It was the same reason that I started the Hybrid Reality Institute, because after spending over 12 years on Wall Street where I was involved with many large-scale systems that not only connected the different parts of a particular financial services institution, but many across the industry, um, I was beginning to really get a sense of how deeply it affected human behavior, productivity, and how far, it tem- far its tentacles went into our society and our social behavior. And I wanted to study that more. So that's when I began to think about and read a number of the writers who had written about um, society and technology. And that's why I went to pursue a PhD to really get a sense of the history, uh, the narrative of human technology interaction over the ages. Um, and so the reason I started the Institute was because I felt there were some like-minded people who did not want to just jump to the singularity 
and either think of the utopia or dystopia there, but they also realized something different was happening. And they wanted to either experiment with it from an artistic perspective or think of it from a policy perspective or a geostrategy perspective or, in my case, a city's perspective. And we are a virtual set of people who get together and, as needed, form groups and think about some projects, but often work very independently, but find a lot of support in the community. Mm-hmm. And the book was also written for the same. It's just kind of a manifesto um, that I wanted to put out there. Well, of the hybrid, but also of what, what I considered was a new socio-technical age, mm-hmm. and just something to just spark off and to contribute to a debate that was already started amongst many of us that should mm-hmm. be actually on the agenda of every person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you very well preempted my next question, which was about the Hybrid Reality Institute itself. itself. So since we covered that, let me move on with the, the following question, which is both in your book and, and generally in your work overall, you talk about the politics of technology and the philosophy of technology, which is very important, both of those. You just mentioned them. So would you mind walking us through the, the process of the way you think about the politics and philosophy of technology? And why is that important? Well, I think the politics of technology is really important because there is um, a need for us to really recognize that, at least for the moment and for the foreseeable future, technology, artifacts, etc., are made in a way that have some human interest embedded in them already. So if there are, is a Facebook page that's in a certain way, it's been designed for, for a certain way, a lot of us, for some reason, begin to think of this as completely devoid of any human interest or human politics. And especially when it comes to cities, when you have networked infrastructure, whether it's private or public sector based, and it's all over the city and it's watching you all the time, what it means is that there's a new social contract that is being signed between the person who lives in a city and the private and public authorities that are providing us the infrastructure. And I think it's very important for us to begin to question and understand what is done with this data and to actively think about whether we agree with that information or not. This can go on about to think about um, when we have robots or other forms of entities, or technological entities that are automating jobs. I think that there may be some corporate politics involved that's pushing that, but then the government has to step up and say, look, we are going to really invest in skills uh, redesign, retransfer, so that the people who are dislocated from these jobs are immediately able to find other jobs. So definitely there's politics involved. And there is a responsibility, um, both in, there's politics in designing the software, there's politics in answering the software. And in both cases, there's a responsibility for the government and for activists to make the public aware so that they are not left stranded. You know, it's very easy to write a book and say, There'll be automation and people will not have jobs. These people have children. They need health insurance. They, uh, they have cars. They have mortgages. This is, you know, I, I want people to stop talking in statistics and think about human beings and, and they should not have these frictions. If they were just prepared, they would not have these frictions. Um, if their children are forming relationships with robots or their grandparents are forming relationships with robots, it's going to have some kind of emotional repercussions. Yeah, there should be information. Where do you go about this? How do you feel about this? Um, and, and I think the more we talk about it in America and other in Canada and, and Singapore, I think the better it is for everyone. Let me ask you this, though. Uh, traditionally, for as long as we can remember, 
I mean, first of all, I have to say that I entirely agree with you that everything is political. I mean, as a former political scientist myself, that was, you know, the mantra in the, de in the Department of Political Science. Everything is political. So, yes, the repercussions of everything that we do are very much political. But let me ask you, um, traditionally government legislation, government policy, even ethics have lagged substantially behind you know, the progress of technology, it's always been playing catch up. In a reality in which, you know, that technological change is infinitely faster almost than ever before, how do you think is it ever going to be possible for government policy and legislation or even, even ethics to keep up with technology? It won't. It absolutely won't. It, it, if so anything, how do that... we regulate and mandate those things that you just suggested then? I think it will have to be kind of a, a combination of top-down and bottom-up. So basically, information infrastructures or the ability for more and more people to have information about these uh, technologies will help to create some kind of movement. We will see more hackers and other kind of activist groups come out and, and spread this information. Um, you know, people will come out on the streets. I'm sure it was very drastic. It's not a comparable case, but we saw what happened in Delhi with the gang rape of the atrocious gang rape of the young woman. Uh, these things used to happen before hundreds of thousands of people came out on the street because of the connectivity that the system provides now. And I'm really hoping that more and more egregious errors by the government where it just lags behind and is not able to provide citizens the protection that they need or the regulatory framework that they need um, is um, is kind of they're compelled to do it because of citizens. Now, it's a fine line, right, because you don't want them, you don't want the top-down pressure to be so much that it stifles innovation. Mm -hmm. So this is a fine line, and, you know, if you think about chaos and, and basically order, you want to be at what they call the edge of chaos. Mm -hmm. And that is this balance, right, where things are, there's some controls, but it's loose enough that people are innovating and collaborating and, and new products and services are being designed, but there are some security protocols and standards. This control can come from the government or it can come from regulatory bodies like the World Wide Web. Um, but it's, it's a very tricky place. And, and you know, we, we haven't even begun to think about one of the other things with hybrid age is that you are having instead of X number of disciplines, now you have an exponentially more number of disciplines because they're all um, integrating with each other. So I think that's, and you know, I, and I, I think hackers will be very useful in that. I know we've had a lot of New York Times coverage and all this hacking that's happening from China, but I am a strong believer that they are quite at the front lines of um, knowing how to protect uh, citizens, those who care, uh, how to protect citizens from some malware, which is the, which is the bigger problem, honestly, is if you had kind of a virus or a malware that is by a corporate entity, or who's going to protect you if the government is so behind? Uh, and I think that that's the almost a bigger issue than the more slower process of having the right regulations in place. Who is it? Who is that day that you're referring to? I'm just trying to figure out that would protect us. Uh, that's what I'm saying. There'll be activist groups and hackers uh -huh. so because they're the ones who are already there. They are the ones who are so embedded in that kind of um, software and are so aware of it. It could be students. It would just be a kind of a homegrown community. Part of it could be anonymous or WikiLeaks kind of people. Yes, I think so. Yes, 
you know, I mean, I know that that's very controversial. Some of some of the things that they do are not always good for national security, but um, I I think that they they are actually necessary, and and the next generation of the of technology proliferation that we see, I think that there are two kinds, but the good kind are very necessary. So, do you think, in a way, that those activist groups of hackers are what stays in the way of uh, Big Brother? Because you're talking about the idea of, you know, getting all that data from pretty much everything that we do around us, uh, smart this, smart that, smart everything. And then that's kind of like the perfect paradigm for Big Brother, uh, isn't it? It is. Absolutely. And Big Brother is not one company yet. It's, it's, a, it's a combination of governments and corporations, whether it's Google, um, Facebook, or, or, or any of the governments. And I think that that remains a big problem. I don't know who would protect us from that because I don't know who will want protection from that. That's the other thing, right? Um, the onus has never been greater on us to make our own decisions. So it's kind of interesting, all that cognitive surplus that Clay Shirky was talking about, I think we should put it to some use now because instead of downloading apps and just saying, I agree, I agree, which I'm as guilty of as anybody else, um, you know, we need to think a little bit about this. Maybe the market itself might have, market mechanisms could also help. So for instance, you have Google goggles or you have facial recognition. I don't know if you saw this Japanese professor had come out with his goggles that, uh, that thwart facial recognition. But, so they could be very expensive, but people would have the option to do that if they wanted to remain anonymous. These are not hackers. These are corporate entities. Sometimes the market will help. But whatever it is, um, nobody can help us if we just agree to everything. So if we think that it's worth it to give away our information, um, then that's, that's, I think, a right that people have as well. Mm -hmm. So perhaps this is the time to move on to the next topic that I know you're very passionate about, and that's the topic of smart cities, but I want to do that by asking you to, I, because I greatly abbreviated your introduction, um, mm. and I want you to just begin by telling us, uh, because I know you're on the faculty of Singularity University and you're also on the Future Cities Group at London School of Economics, mm. so I'd like you to speak a little bit more about that, your position at, for example, LSE, and, and well, how I'm is that connected to what you do? So I'm uh, in Mark Goodman's group at the Singularity uh, University. I'm a faculty advisor, not mm -hmm. uh, on the faculty over there. Oh, and I've given, I've given a talk over there, and I'm a huge fan of the university itself. And um, at the London School of Economics, I literally just took a break from my career and went there with my family to start my PhD in the Information Systems and Innovation Group. And that's where I am studying uh, the complexity of information infrastructures. And over there, I uh, spoke to people in the information systems department and in the cities department, and I said, you know, guys, like future cities are actually going to be at the intersection of technology and urban uh, urban environments, so we should have a future cities group, and that's what I began to organize. And we have fairly academic meetings talking about the research that's done in that. Uh, I have been thinking about smart cities and writing about them for some time. Actually, I have gone to great lengths to visit a number of the projects all over the world since you see these simulations but on the ground we're still very far from these futuristic cities mm -hmm. so I think there are a lot of interesting developments happening and there's a lot of potential for us to lead a higher quality of life a more sustainable quality of life um, but again the, the, there's the pros and cons and that is just the nature of technology I mean, there's such an old saying that technology is a double-edged sword 
but that's kind of the basis uh, that we all start with anyway. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your idea of a smart city. What is a smart city anyway? For me, a smart city is one that has um, essentially a network infrastructure that allows all your civil services to be integrated and allows your personal preferences, uh, whether it's health or security, your house, banking, etc., all have the option to be integrated if you should so agree for that to happen. Um, it is something that makes it very seamless for you to move around in the city and cuts down a lot of the bureaucracy and inefficiencies that we have. It also helps you be more sustainable by taking over some of the decisions uh, by dynamically changing the electricity consumption in your household, for instance. So based on your preferences, you can lead a more sustainable life, you can connect with people much better, and you can also um, have the time to collaborate and co-work and also be productive and creative uh, because you are dealing far less with the city. So city is a platform. Now, that's one thing. So it's operationally much smoother. But it's more than that. It is more self-governed in a way, which means that the systems are there for you to provide immediate feedback, um, whether it is through the traditional social media that we know uh, or Bloomberg has or 411. But even more so, um, there may be, uh, you know, probably kiosks at bus stations where information is present. If you don't like something, you just click on it. There will be all kinds of interfaces across the city that will allow you to do that. Uh, there also, that's the second element. The third element is the city as a platform provides a huge opportunity in the Internet of Things for a new type of entrepreneur to come up, an entrepreneur who not only can commercialize projects much sooner because he's able to connect with the right people at the right time, thanks to the information infrastructures in the city and beyond, but also because there are many products and services that will come up. Um, the Google driverless car is one example of a car or, or, or some versions before it. Also, they require many, many new products. Um, and this, the city as a dashboard will, will, will is really where we'll see the next big boom in entrepreneurship. So for many reasons, I think it's interesting. But these are four or five great reasons to love technology in cities. But along with them, obviously, come the fact that where is this data being kept? Um, Am I sure that when I say that it should not be kept, that, it, that, that in fact it's not integrated? Um, who are these companies who are deciding? Uh, are, so market, so the more big data that you have, obviously the more dynamic pricing is being done for everything, which may be good if you went earlier to get your groceries and then got a discount because there's less of a rush and so you were a good citizen, you didn't contribute to traffic jam. Maybe bad if your, um, you know, health insurance is linked to it, to the fact that, you know, you drank a lot and so woke up late. So I think these are all things that are going to, um, going to become big question marks for us. And I, I don't know how we'll deal with that. It's a, it's, it will have to slowly begin to unravel and make simple ways. So for instance, and again, I think the market may respond to this. If, if there was enough of a debate, the market would respond to it because people will care. So there is a, this, this problem that I was telling you about that everybody downloads apps and just says, I agree, I agree. Now, if there was another app I could download that would check every other app and told me and highlighted in yellow or actually translated any things that, that were, um, that could be flagged. By saying, Aisha, you just down, you're agreeing to, if you agree to download this, you are agreeing that all your photographs will be the property of 
X company. Instagram. And for instance, and you know, I mean, so, so that is something I would pay for. I would pay a dollar for that. I would pay two dollars for that for sure. So mm-hmm. I think it's the kind of thing where if enough people got sick of it, there were even a million people said yes. And then, you know, it's a network effect. The more people use it, the more people find out about it. So I think if you'll see, I wouldn't lose my trust in the market. I think I, that some market mechanisms would respond. I actually think uh, Apple is, is already working actually on uh, more user-friendly control over the kind of data that apps that you install have over mm-hmm. your phone. So you That's can a- you can sort of choose uh, how much of, of your own personal stuff that you hold on your phone do you want to share with those apps or 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 not? Uh, but what do you do when you are distracted? You're busy. You're listening to music. You're talking on the phone. Yeah. I don't want too many choices, and that is another problem of a whole different nature. Yeah. And if we're feeling this way, our kids are absolutely in no mood to deal with it. This needs to be part of our education. This education where that the technology doesn't do things. You control the technology, and you have a. a a responsibility towards how you deal with it. This needs to be taught way back in preschool. I and mean, I think it really calls for a reimagination of how we teach our children how to live um, in an urban environment because over 70% of us will live in cities, urban environments which are increasingly infused with technological artifacts. Yeah, I, I agree entirely with you on that point of education. Actually, uh, next week, I think uh, next Wednesday from now on, I'm actually invited to speak um, in a class of grade 12. And, and awesome. That's, that's one of the things that I'm planning to cover in my, in my conversation with them. Um, so, but let me ask you, we're talking about those smart city in a sort of a hypothetical. Uh, mm. So is there any examples of those? And are we more likely to see them in emerging countries like China and India, for example? Uh, or are we more likely to see them in Europe or in North America? I think we'll, well, there is no absolutely perfect smart city at the moment. I think Singapore comes close to have being a city that has a lot of networked infrastructure that is improving everything from water management to traffic management to, um, to e-governance. Now, on the other hand, a lot of pilot projects are being done across the world that are uh, experimenting with uh, how as these sensors become cheaper and the data storage continues to fall precipitously, um, you know, how can this, the, the society prepare for this and how can they be scaled? These are happening in Europe. They're happening in America. Um, in America, they will be very, I think, private sector driven. And because, uh, and this is what we see already, some of the companies that are happening. Um, in Europe, in Germany, which is my case study in Berlin, um, there is, for instance, the idea that an electric car sharing should be integrated into public transportation. This is in so much, so many ways such a wonderful thing. You get rid of car ownership. You uh, bring in sustainable transportation. You improve the ability of people to uh, not only save money, but uh, lower pollution in the city. Uh, this is something that the market itself was not ready to spontaneously do. The, uh, the technology wasn't there and the prices were not right for the consumers to take it on. So the government, uh, the German federal government 
had about a couple of demonstration projects in which it's an integration between the energy provider, whether it's solar energy, wind power, electric, electricity, public transportation systems, car manufacturers, etc. And they all come together and they prototype the infrastructure. When we think of prototyping, we inevitably think of little like web apps or, you know, like, like some Google, we see these guys like doing prototyping and that's really interesting. But the bigger problem in the whole world, including the emerging world, is, is infrastructure. That's where a lot of investment is happening. That's what people need. And if we can build the infrastructure the right way, then we can actually build a much high quality of life. And that is very technology dependent. And technology is just not ICT. Technology is nanotech, biotech, clean tech, wet tech. Um, and so the government has a role, and, and European governments do take that role seriously, and they do sponsor a lot of those kind of experiments. In resource-rich countries like the Middle East, which after China is the second, I believe, largest investor in infrastructure, and, and smart cities is all about infrastructure, um, physical and soft, uh, there's a lot more money. So we have a lot of smart city projects like Mastar and some coming up in Mecca and Qatar. They're not at any stage at the moment where they have hundreds of thousands of people living in them. I would say they are, again, pilots, experimentations. But a lot, uh, and again, in, in China, you have many, many such projects coming up as well. As in India, there are seven new smart cities planned. But they're very difficult to get off the ground. There are billions of dollars involved. But I think what we see here is a glimpse into what the future would look like. Right now, some of these cities have 50,000, 60,000 people. But, but the, the, major, the bigger problem is going to be how do we take existing cities with 9, 10, 11 million people and we begin to integrate smart technologies in them. Uh, we've seen New York done, do some amazing things in that respect. But like I said, it's, um, it's very easy to get swayed by the futuristic simulations one sees, but we're at a very early stage in this in this area. But that doesn't mean it's not going there um, and, and rapidly reaching that stage, which is why I think this is a right time to talk about it before we actually suddenly wake up one day and see it all around us. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that during your, your speech, uh, you give uh, Toronto as an example of a city yes. that is on the way towards being smart city. And as, as a <laughs> Torontonian, somebody who is who's been living here for 15 years. I have to say that from my point of view, I think from most of our president's point of view, Toronto doesn't look like a very smart city at all. <laughs> Absolutely. I think Toronto has a long way to go. So does New York. So does Mumbai. Even Singapore is far from being pleased with its current state of governance. But I think that what we're seeing is certain areas being developed when certain kinds of new um, pilot projects taking place where some of these experimentations are taking place. And I think that, that they, the people are looking to them to understand much better what such a scenario would look like. And, and let me take the Singapore example, too, and, and talk a little bit about freedom. And mm -hmm. I mean... Does progress necessarily have to come at sort of the cost of restricting our freedoms? Because, I mean, I personally admit I have never been to Singapore, but I've seen a few documentaries about it. And uh, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but small things like, for example, chewing gum is illegal yes. as far as I know. And, and from then onwards, you can talk about a technocratic sort of a society with very, in some cases, substantial limitations on citizens' freedoms and rights in order to induce that progress. So does it, does progress have to come at the cost of personal rights and liberties? 
It doesn't. And I would disagree that Singapore is such a place. Um, I've been here for seven months now, and I have found the technocrats that you're talking about to be very, very thoughtful about the kinds of things that they are thinking about. And they're very keen to encourage entrepreneurs and young people to participate much more in economic innovation and productivity and to improve the education sector. Um, now, on the other hand, I know that there are a number of people who talk about the fact that the newspapers and the press are not as free. When I'm personally talking to friends here, I don't find them hesitating at all. But I do see, especially the older generation, which has seen Singapore come a long way, um, very frankly say, you have no idea the, the condition that Singapore was in, and these policies were very helpful. I didn't live through that period. I think now a young Singaporean is... Um, is very much a digital native, like an American or even a Pakistani. They, they have their set of complaints and they have their set of things that they think is right. Um, but I think that during that time, um, I, was, I was definitely not here at that time, but I think that there is no need for it to come at the cost of rights and freedom liberties. But I do think that what we have seen is that a government that is technocratic and that is efficient and that is able to invest in human capital can actually take a country a long way. Mm -hmm. And for me, perhaps coming from, from Pakistan, which I, you know, was my, where I was raised as a child and, and which I'm very grateful to for my childhood, but I'm very sad about the level of corruption and, the, and where it is now. Um, you know, we have a, a democracy in only in name over there whereas people have absolute lack of social mobility and they don't have the education infrastructure there. So there shouldn't be a trade-off, but there are certain practical things that one needs to realize when you have a lot of people and you want to move a country forward where it can stand next to other countries and where each one of your citizens feels very proud of, of the fact that you can compete with them at any level. So if I come, say, to visit you and I'm... I, I got a puck of gum with me on the flight, and I forget that I'm in Singapore and I start chewing gum somewhere in a public place. Would I get arrested or something? <laughs> Honestly, I don't know about this chewing gum. Everybody sends me an email about this chewing gum thing. Um, I, I, maybe you'll get fined. I haven't done that. So I'm not sure. <laughs> I do know that recently there was something about not smoking in certain public spaces. Um, and I don't know, maybe there's a fine associated with that, too. Well, I'll be a lot more sympathetic towards non-smoking bands, <laughs> yeah. obviously, I think. But chewing gum is, is perhaps, for me, it's a little too much. Um, anyway, that's just... A, but you should definitely come and visit. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I'll be very curious and, and eager to, to see it firsthand, actually. Um, so... Ayesha, I think we're coming towards the, the last couple of questions of, of um, our interview. And um, I want to ask you the traditional two questions that I always ask at the end. And number one is, where can people find more about you and your work? What's the best place? I think the best place is um, I have some my own website, AyeshaKhanna.com. But the, really the best place to see what I'm doing Right now and for the next couple of years, five to ten years, will be the new startup, which is an educational technology platform that I've started in Singapore called Urban Intel. So it's urbanintel.co, C-O. And essentially it provides a platform for vocational skills. 
Because I think the big problem in Southeast Asia and South Asia is that people graduate from colleges and they are just not market ready. And they require kind of lifelong education. So I'm building a technological platform that allows uh, companies to partner with academic institutions to specifically create the content that they need so that people who come in are immediately productive. And especially in rapidly urbanizing cities, there's a great lack of quality training that is needed. And so a lot of these sectors are opening up at the most obvious one being hospitality, but so is retail management, manufacturing, construction. And vocational education has traditionally been associated with plumbing or being a mechanic, um, whereas I think vocational education 2.0 is much about managing the robots or or managing the software that manages the port logistics mm-hmm. um, or doing the AutoCAD, so information-intensive um, courses that can be provided digitally with interactive quizzes and can be used to link up the employers with the right people with the right skills. Well, so that's, that's, I think that's where you would find everything that I'm doing for many years now. That's fascinating. I, I, I forgot that I was planning to ask you actually about your startup. So, uh, so let's just talk a little bit more about that. How did the idea come about and, and did you see like there's a vacuum somewhere on the market or an opportunity? Well, I've been very interested in education for several years now. One of the things that I've been trying to do, but that neither the technology or nor the content was right, was to start a mobile literacy project in Pakistan. I intend to do that later on. Um, one of the smart cities projects that I was advising on was a new city that was getting a new clean tech or green technology factory. And uh, they were very keen to have their workers be local residents and not imported from another country. Mm-hmm. And so they were asking my team, like, can you please tell us something, some vocational courses in a digital format or for it's very difficult for teachers to find that they could just, you know, understand the theory and some of the basic courses. And then you have to send one teacher or two teachers instead of us. We don't even have a university really there. Mm-hmm. So I started asking people. There wasn't anything really there in Southeast Asia. So... Um, and, and what was there was again very academic in nature or was not really co-created with the, with the company itself. Uh, and then, uh, and then it just so happened, you know, a lot of people said, well, you know, why don't you just do it yourself? And, and I would say having a startup is like having twins or triplets. It's so much work. Um, yeah. but it's, uh, it's something I cared about a lot. I was really excited about. And so I've kind of, you know, taken it on and I'm, I'm really happy about it. I've met some really good people. So, you know, it's always a risk. So let's see how it goes. But that brings, me actually, that brings me to another question, actually, which is to say that I have become over the last five years or, or so very skeptical on the ability of university education to adapt to our changing world. Uh, I mean, I spent probably eight years of my life in university and... Uh, <laughs> I... I I, I don't think that, I think it's a good example of an institution or a system absolutely failing to keep up with times and in fact perhaps going backwards rather than forwards. What do you want to say about that? Do you agree? Do you disagree? No, no, I absolutely agree with you. I'm 100% agree with you. I, I'm doing my PhD, but I, I would be very surprised if either one of my two children went to college at all. Um, it's... Um, they, it's just they're not teaching the right 
things to people. They're, they're definitely not teaching them the right way to think about a, a labor force that's going to be constantly disrupted by technology acceleration. Um, how to be creative, how to be innovative. And I think that how to work and study at the same time. That's very, very important. So why would you wait till you're out of college? Why can't you start working far earlier um, as an apprentice or as an internship? Those programs are rare, and people do that just to get into college. But really, they need to be done to give people a much better understanding of how they can create something valuable in society. Um, apart from that, I think the other big problem in the U.S. is, of course, the cost, which I think in is really... Oh, you know, it's very, very... In unfair. U.S., it's worse. In U.S., admittedly, in U.S., it's worse. So I think that's very unfair in students. Uh, I think the people who benefit the most are employers, and I think that some burden should be put on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think when you... And I think just the employers need to be bought in much more into the conversation. Mm-hmm. They should be bought in. They should be. They should be asked, not human resources necessarily, because they are always looking at what the company needs today. They should ask some people who are working on what the company will leave five years from now, ten years from now. And then they should be able to craft some syllabuses or syllabi that make them very relevant as a result mm-hmm. to, to the industry. And I think that would create a much better uh, coordinated effort in giving people the right skills. Because obviously people want to either have a high quality of life and be productive um, more than be economically successful. They want that as well. They don't want to be hugely successful necessarily, but they definitely want to be productive and provide for their families. And one of the big problems we have right now is that all of the jobs, are, all of the education that people are getting is not getting them jobs. Yeah, actually just last night, me and my wife, we watched a fantastic CBC uh, documentary uh, precisely on that topic. And, and in Canada, by the way, which is one of the which is the only advanced country in the world without a national policy on education, without a national ministry of education, and with among pretty much the worst unemployment rates for uh, the 20 to 30-year-olds. So, and especially for university and college graduates. Um, So, and the official statistics are about 15%, uh, which is double the national unemployment rate, of um, young university and college graduates are unemployed. And and the hidden unemployment is that about 50% altogether of those who are employed work in a very uh, minimum wage kind of environment. Uh, so you have people with, uh, and the, the worst example perhaps, or the best example is that we have about 67% of teachers in Ontario which are either fully unemployed or uh, very underemployed, uh, simply because the, the educational system has transformed into this mammoth, you know, uh, qual- quantity, uh, you know, producing, um, I don't know, mastodons that basically produces people uh, makes them go into huge amounts of debt, and there's nothing for them to do after they graduate <laughs> on the topic that they've graduated for. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's very sad. You know, it's only a problem that you see. Uh, I used to think you only see that in the Middle East or in um, 
in Pakistan. That's what because I was more aware of those areas. Where I remember really bright kids who were not from well enough to do families that they would go abroad, but that they would go to local colleges and come out, be engineers, be doctors, and not get a job. And you can imagine in the Middle East where the average age for a young man is in his early 20s, you have all these very bright, unemployed, educated, unemployed men. Mm-hmm. And they're very frustrated and unhappy as a result. So I think that there's a... Um, you know, there's there's a geopolitical angle to it as well, where you really want to, you know, channel the energies of your population in a productive manner. Now, this does not mean a top-down assignment that you do this and you do this, but it means precisely the kinds of infrastructures that you put in, the kind of universities that you put in, the way that you change the, the foundations so that um, once they get out, they just can on their own do everything. Well, the counterexample in the documentary that was given was Switzerland, where yes. the, the unemployment for college graduates or young people in general was under 2%. And uh, they, they were actually following many of the examples that you were just giving of, of the tips that you were giving. So they start uh, being uh, sort of specialized at a very early age, at about 15, which doesn't mean that they don't have time or opportunity to switch direction at some point later on. Uh, and by the time they, and many of them go into the workforce at 17 or 18, and there's no such thing as unemployment, structurally speaking. They already know where they're going to work, mm-hmm. and the whole system is shaped in such a way that, uh, for example, they don't allow more than 20% of all high school students to go to university. Um, and, and as a result of that, there is no, you know, huge unemployment among graduates because that's very, supply and demand are very well balanced. Um, anyway, though, um, Aisha, I really appreciate your time here. And I just want to ask you the very light last question here for our interview, which is if our viewers and listeners were to take a single, the single most important thing from this interview with you today, what would you like that to be? I would really like people to think about taking their education, their children's education, and their own education, no matter how old or young they are, into their own hands. And I specifically speak in the context of technology, which means that taking it upon themselves to understand how technology works, and that, and you can do that, by the way, without ever touching any hardware or software. It's basically about understanding algorithmic thinking, about design thinking. It's about moving away from an instructive mode of acquiring education or any information, which is what we do every time we Google something. It's very passive. To moving much more into Seymour Puppet from MIT says is the constructivist way of learning. Whatever you can, you have to encourage yourselves and others to make something out of it. To think you can create new knowledge. And then all of a sudden technology becomes a completely different entity in your life. It is not something to waste time with or to listen to music with. You can make music. You can make things with it. And, and the whole maker movement is around this. But I think that it starts with education. It's part of an attitude towards education. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, a fantastic point for us to end on. And so I would like to thank you very much, Ayesha Hanna, for being with us today. Thank you, Nicola. Bye-bye.